Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Tuesday, November 11th, 2014. Looking at the last second notes here. I think I got it all together. We're ready to, as they say, rock and roll. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. We take the time to slow down and stop and open up our Bibles to see if what popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, authors, people that are put forward by the evangelical industrial complex and the major uh, Christian publishing houses as people that we need to be listening to, uh, to see if, if what they're bringing to us is the historic biblical Christian faith or if instead they're bringing us false doctrine and false teaching cleverly disguised to look like sound doctrine and teaching. Now, what we're going to be doing today, this is going to be kind of a fascinating uh, episode. Uh, we're going to be looking at different examples of, I don't know how, to, how else to put it except for like not paying attention to the details of what Scripture says. It's one thing to read a text. It's another thing to exegete the text correctly. And exegeting a text correctly requires you to pay attention to context, pay attention to grammar, pay attention to what's being said and who it's being said about. Uh, There's some very important things that need to go on if you're going to rightly handle God's Word. And uh, so... The examples that we're going to give today, um, several of them, not every one of them, several of them are like, if you've seen the movie Up, where they have that dog who, you know, he talks and then all of a sudden goes, squirrel! And, you know, and he is looking, you know, and his attention is completely lost. This is kind of like, you know, exegetical squirrel is probably a good way to put it. Um, examples that we're going to be showing today. Now, we're, the first example isn't quite that. Second example is that. Third example really is that. And then the whole sermon review, I think, is an, it just one really long example of exegetical squirrel. So you, you get what I'm saying. So that's what we're going to be doing today. We're going to be looking at examples of the exegetical squirrel. New term that we've coined here at Fighting for the Faith. And uh, let's talk about who we're going to be listening to and uh, as we look at examples of this. So every every uh, person that we play today, 
on Fighting for the Faith will be examples of the exegetical squirrel. Although uh, the Jensen Franklin update that we're starting with, it's it's a little more subtle than that. So we're going to begin with a um, Jensen Franklin update, uh, money-grubbing televangelist. He's speaking at a youth conference, so he's speaking to a bunch of you know, teenagers and college students, you know, but people in that age, the, the, uh, the youths. And, uh, he's, well, the best way I could put it is, is I've never heard anyone preach this particular text, uh, from the old Testament, the way he's preaching it. So we'll take a look at that. We'll switch gears. We have a David crank update, another, and this will be a primo example of the exegetical squirrel. And, uh, and then we'll take a break when we come back, we're going to be listening to Joyce Meyer and this one, uh, you know, we've got the exegetical squirrel in there, but we've also got, you see, now I feel like I'm doing the Heidi Baker thing. I, you know, squirrel is like my equivalent of Shubba. Anyway, uh, don't worry. The, the Holy Spirit has nothing to do with this. I'm, I'm quite in control of what I'm doing. Anyway, uh, but uh, her, the uh, Joyce Meyer update, yes, the exegetical squirrel is there, but it's it's that's her second text that she twists. The first one is... Is is so subtle that if you don't know how to read something in context and really pay attention to exegetically what's going on, and also use the principle of scripture interpret scripture, this is a vital thing uh, in you know this first major Bible twisting that she engages in. Uh, second one is definitely the exegetical squirrel, so you'll see that. And then in hour number two, we're going to head down to Kissimmee, Florida, and uh, listen to a sermon from uh, City of Life Church. And, uh, yeah, this is one of those ones where it's like, you know, one exegetical squirrel after another. It's quite fascinatingly bad. So that's how we're going to spend today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. Strongly recommend that you make yourself comfortable. And since we're starting off with a money-grubbing televangelist update, that requires us to do this. That's Dr. Teeth and our money-grubbing televangelist update music, Money, Money, Money. Now, what we're going to be listening to, like I said just a few minutes ago, we're going to be listening to Jensen Franklin, and he is speaking at a youth conference. So the audience, I mean, this is like 12,000 youths uh, gathered uh, to hear him speak. And what he does here is, well, it's, it's just exegetically inexcusable is probably the best way to put it. Um, in fact, this this is kind of like the the equivalent of uh, if uh, you were to go to the doctor and uh, the, you know, and have surgery performed, 
and the uh, the doctor uh you know didn't clean his instruments left you know uh, a surgical sponge inside of your body and sutured you up this is this is spiritual malpractice that we're listening to so the youth conference is the forward youth conference forward uh, 2014 and uh, so just pay close attention and see what he does with this text from the old testament regarding the widow whose husband had died and she came to Elisha the prophet saying, you know, what do I do? And then, you know, he said, well, what have you got? And she, she said, well, I got nothing. He said, well, you know, <clears throat> you know, you need to get, you know, a thing of oil. Uh, actually, she had a thing of oil. And he said, go get a whole bunch of vessels and, you know, and then don't get a, a few of them, get a lot of them. And uh, let's see what Jensen Franklin does with this text. I'd like you to open them with me to the book of Second Kings, or you can turn on your Bible if you'd rather do it that way. And I want to share with you what I feel heavy on my heart tonight in a good way. is an important message for you to hear. I'm re- now, notice he said that he feels that this is heavy on his heart. That's to imply that God the Holy Spirit is the one who laid this message on his heart. Now, we're going to challenge that as to whether or not that's God the Holy Spirit based upon this. If God the Holy Spirit is the one who laid this heavy on his heart... Why would God the Holy Spirit want Jensen Franklin to twist God's word? I think that's probably an important question. We continue. Tonight from 2 Kings chapter 4, a certain woman with the wives of the sons of the prophet cried out to Elijah saying, Your servant, my husband, is dead. You know that your servant feared the Lord and the creditors have come to take my two sons to enslave them. And Elisha said to her, what shall I do for you? Tell me, what do you have in the house? And she said, your maidservant has nothing in the house but a jar of oil. Then he said, go borrow vessels. Now I want you to notice how many times the word vessels is used in the next couple of verses. Go borrow vessels from everywhere, from your neighbors, empty vessels. Do not gather just a few. When you come in, shut the door behind you, your sons, pour into those vessels, set aside the full ones. She went to him, shut the door behind her and her sons. She brought the vessels to her and she poured it out. And it came to pass when the vessels were full, that she said to her son, son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there is not another vessel. So the oil ceased. This is... So that's the text. That's the text. Now the question is, what does it mean? Okay? Remember his audience. And what he's going to do here is adapt the meaning of this text to sort of kind of fit the audience, the audience full of youths. We continue. Famous Old Testament story that you may not understand what it has to do with your life tonight, but it absolutely is intersecting with your life. Because what was taking place in Bible days, if you couldn't pay your bills, they could come in, the one that you owed money to, called the creditor, could come and enslave the next generation in your household. And you would have to pay the bill for the previous generation. Enslave the next generation in your household. Kind of an interesting angle he's working at here. Okay, all right, so they're going to come and enslave the next generation, you know, the youths. That's, okay. And this woman had lost her husband. She had no means of income. And I want you to see the picture. 
The creditors are on the door, pounding on the door, and they're coming to enslave the next generation, her sons. And the only thing, and I see in this a picture of the spirit of the world coming to enslave the next generation, knocking on the church door. What? You see this as a picture of the world coming, knocking on the doors of the church to enslave the next generation? (laughs) Where are you getting that? Saying your sons and your daughters will be our slaves. We're going to chain them and addict them and bind them to everything that will kill, steal, and destroy. And the only thing between the creditors taking the next generation away in chains and a slavery was oil. So the only thing to save the next generation is oil. So if you think the creditors equal the world coming on the door of the church to come and enslave the next generation, what does the oil represent? Notice what he's doing is just willy-nilly allegorizing this this text in order to make it fit, you know, some kind of relevant theme for the audience. But you know, who in church history discovered that really what's going on here is is that this is a message to the youths, you know, in the church. I mean, this is a weird, irrational twisting of God's word. And notice he's not paying attention at all to what this text is really about. He just read it. And now he's going to invent some allegory for it. All in the Bible represents the Holy Spirit. All in the uh, oil in the Bible represents the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is going to save the youths. Who you know? Who are the the world has come to enslave them? Oh my goodness! This how on earth is anyone listening to this man and saying and thinking this makes sense? This doesn't make any sense at all. Represents the miracle power of God, the supernatural intervention of God. And the only thing that can stop the next generation from being enslaved is not programs, it's not, it's not performance. It takes the anointing of the Holy Spirit to stay free. Uh-huh. And he's getting an applause line for that. People are like, oh, that is the best thing ever. <laughs> I mean, seriously. Why aren't they throwing tomatoes at him going... Boo! Hiss! Go away! You're a Bible twister! How dare you, wolf! Why aren't they doing that? I want you to notice that the, the answer was in the house. It was not out there. It was in here. There is a Holy Spirit revival in this room right now that could shape this nation and this world. Uh-huh. Yeah, Wow. How can that be a Holy Spirit revival? God, the Holy Spirit, you know, Jesus says when he sends the comforter that he will convict the sin of uh, the world of sin and unbelief. Um, here you've got the Holy Spirit basically uh, telling everybody, oh, they're the they're the they're the future and the hope. And oh, yeah, you know, we're going to twist God's word. Why did God lay it on your heart to, to mangle his word? The prophet said to the woman. What do you have in your house? What have you got in your house? It's a huge question. Because what you have in your house can help bring a miracle to your house or it can hinder a miracle from coming to your house.
Um, what am I looking for in my house? I got a lot of things in my house. I got like a couch. You know, there, we got a we got a dining room table and some chairs. We even have a coffee maker, um, refrigerator, and, and then you know our closets full of junk and stuff. What exactly are, are, should I be looking for in my house? That's gonna you know that's gonna create the miracle thing. Yeah, you know, I want to know what am I looking for. The Bible said that the prophet said, "What have you got in your house?" And the woman said. All I've got is a pot of oil. And the prophet said, you've got all that you need because you've got a pot of oil. If you'll give God a vessel, I want you to notice that the oil is not the problem. The oil is there. The oil is available. Okay. The issue in this story, and I want you to look at it a little bit different, is not about the oil. And how God multiplied the oil and kept increasing and creating more and more oil to flow out of one little pot that she started pouring from. That is not the main emphasis of the story. The main emphasis of the story, the oil is not the problem. The oil would keep flowing and flowing and flowing and flowing. The issue in the story is, is there a vessel? And they're clapping for this. Why? This doesn't make any sense. And I'm preaching tonight on be the vessel. Be the vessel. <laughs> be the vessel. Yeah, it reminds me of uh, Caddyshack. Be the ball. No, 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 no. Anyway, this is absurd. This is not what this text is saying or, or what it means. If you want a miracle, the prophet said to the woman, go get something God can pour something into. Yeah, that's not exactly right. Um, he didn't say if you want a miracle. He basically said, listen, you know, here's what's going to happen. Make sure you go and get a bunch of vessels. That's, there's, a, there's a difference between what Scripture says and what you're saying. And the woman helped God with her miracle. This is very important, what I'm about to say. Yeah, God doesn't need our help. The miracle was going to happen. She didn't need to make sure she just had enough vessels to carry, you know, to basically, you know, store the oil that was about to come. The woman determined the magnitude of her miracle, not God. What? When the prophet said, go borrow vessels and borrow not a few. Go to everyone in your neighborhood and get empty vessels and bring them into your house. What he was saying was, you determine how much oil and miracles that God allows to flow into your life. Not God, because heaven has an endless supply. The only issue is if he can find a vessel to pour the oil into and then the Bible said that the prophet said, once you get those vessels, empty vessels in that room, shut the door. Because when God is looking for a vessel that he's going to pour his, his anointing into and his power into and his miracles and his purpose and his plan into, it requires separation. You have to shut the door. <laughs> this is just... Totally bizarre and absurd. This is ridiculous. Why are these people applauding and they should be doing this? Yeah, 
it's terrible. It's terrible. I mean, they should be basically heckling this guy until he leaves the building saying, that's not what this text is saying at all. Where are you getting any of this? So, I mean, <laughs> it's like, you know, he looks like he's exegeting, but he's not. Uh, he's created an allegory. The allegory is all about those kids, you know. It's all about you. So this is an example of narcissistic eisegesis. But, I mean, it, what he's doing here is so patently absurd. There isn't a single biblical commentary, you know, from a decent Bible scholar that would support what this man is saying. This is, uh, I mean, hi, you, you, you get the point. Moving along. Time for a David Crank update. That's right, Gary Wright's Dreamweaver. That's our David Crank update music. Now, we're going to be listening to a portion of a recent sermon delivered by David Crank. And this is a the perfect example of what we are calling here today the exegetical squirrel. It's like no sooner does he read the text that he totally ignores what it is it's actually saying. So without any further ado, here is David Crank. Here we go. I want to talk to you today about our authority as a believer, way down, and how that oftentimes the enemy comes at you and tries to destroy you by telling you stuff that is erroneous information, and then you're not living really in your full potential as a believer. Mm, so the devil's going to come along and tell you things that are erroneous in order to keep you from achieving your full potential. Mm-hmm. Not familiar with those texts. Are you familiar with those texts? I'm not familiar with those texts that say that. And I got a picture of our little dog real quick I want to show you. We got this two-pound, two-ounce dog. Isn't that a big dog? She has her own Instagram account, Luffy Crank. She just posts stuff, you know, mostly selfies. She's in love with herself. But that dog wants to go everywhere with us. And I take her almost everywhere with her. You've heard me say before, I take her to the bank, let her ride the tube. And sometimes she even leaves a deposit. You know, you know all that. And, but the dog always tries to leave with us. When we leave, she thinks she gets to go because she does a lot of times. But she's so little, she could really be injured if she goes in the garage and we don't know it. So, Nicole, we've tried it different ways. When the dog goes in the garage, she's tried, Luffy, get back in the house. No go. No, like, I'm not going. She's tried, Luffy, you get back in the house. Doesn't work. But the only thing that works is this code word, and it works for Nicole really well, and, and it works on me. She even does it on me. And she says, Luffy, get your butt back in the house. When she says it that way, the dog's like, oh, she's not kidding. And she runs back in the house. And, and I was thinking about it this last week. A lot of times as believers, we keep playing with the addiction. We keep playing with the enemy and we're like, oh, devil, leave me alone. Stop it. Oh yeah. Well, no big deal. But you, you got to understand who you are and what you possess in Christ. So you can essentially tell the enemy, Satan, get your butt back in the house and leave me alone. I decree and declare today that God has given me power to bind and loose and to take authority. And I decree and declare that God has given me power. Sounds like an overstepping of things here. I'm not familiar with this particular formula in Scripture, but we continue. Big, bold life. I'm here to tell you today that you're equipped, that you're anointed, 
that God's given you full authority. Even if you've only been born again two weeks, you just received this. You're like, well, how many weeks do I have to go till I get full authority? Well, perhaps, you know, you might, the enemy will say, well, you've got to go two consecutive Christmases in a row, and you've got to do four uh, you know, Easter's, and then you've got to go through our new member class, and then you'll have authority and power. But no, as soon as you receive Jesus, you receive full access, and heaven now backs you with this authority. And so that gives us the power to keep the enemy under our feet. Everybody shout it. Sounds good. Ephesians 1 verse 20. Okay, now let's take a look at Ephesians chapter 1 and uh, make sure we understand what's uh, going on there. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1, and he said verse 20, right? Yes, he did. Okay, so uh, let's read and let's put some context on this so we can understand what's going on before he ever approaches the text because I think we're dealing with the exegetical squirrel here today. Here's what it says. I'll start at chapter 1, verse 1. Let's let's read a little Bible here. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Good opening here. Now, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, or you can say in his sight. In love, he, God, predestined predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory." For this reason, because you have heard, uh, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom, of revelation, in knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, so that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, this last part of uh, chapter 1, 
is all talking about Jesus. Well, let me reread it and kind of highlight what's going on here. Um, I'll start at verse 18. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened, okay, so this is talking about you, that you may know what is the hope to which he he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, verse 19, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might, that he, God, worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Now, just real quick reading comprehension here. You know, you think back to when you were in elementary school and you had to take those bubble tests. They would have you read a couple of paragraphs and then you had to answer questions, you know, uh, you know as to what you read. This is just basic reading comprehension. In, in verse 20, it says when it says that he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand, who is the him referred to there? Answer, it's Jesus, plain and simple. So now we've taken a look at it. You're kind of prepared now for what David Crank is about to do. But what he's about to do is, well, the exegetical squirrel. Here we go. Which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places, far above principalities and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but that which is to come. And he has put all things under his feet. Let's all read that together. All things under his feet. One more time, loud and strong. All things under Not some things. How many things? All He's put drug addiction under your feet. He's put... Whoa, lo- did you catch that? He just changed the uh, the personal pronoun. He put all things under his feet. You, and he said, well, repeat that, all things under his feet. And then he just changed it to you. Yeah, it happens so fast. But watch what he does, and I'll, I'll keep it in context so that you can kind of see how he transitions. He transitions from he put all things under his feet to he put all, all things under your feet. Squirrel! I mean, I mean, this is like not paying attention at all to the text. And by the way, in the text, the pronouns matter as well. Did God put all things under your feet or all things under Jesus' feet? Ephesians one twenty says all things under his, Jesus, not yours. Listen again. One more time, loud and strong. Not some things. How many things? He's put drug addiction under your feet. He's put lack under your feet. He's put depression under your feet. uh, Discouragement under your feet. All things under your feet. Wrong. The text says all things under his feet. Not mine. Not yours. Jesus's. Yeah, that is... You kind of get what's going on there. And listen, if that's how a sermon begins, yeah, there's. I don't think there's any way to rescue that sermon. I mean, it doesn't matter what the text says now, does it? You're not going to pay attention to it. It doesn't say he put all things under your feet. It says that God the Father put all things under Jesus' feet. So what uh, David Crank was engaging in there was the exegetical squirrel, just totally changing what the text says in order to scratch itching ears and deceive them into believing something that God's Word doesn't actually say. God's Word does not say that God put all things under your feet, but that God the Father put everything under Jesus' feet. Yep. Prime example there. 
prime example of the exegetical squirrel. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we have a Joyce Meyer update, another example of the exegetical squirrel. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We will be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Siri, what is your analysis of the sermon Rick Warren preached this past Sunday? Let me think about that. Here you go. Rick Warren quoted 15 Bible verses out of context using 11 different translations and paraphrases. Even an iPhone utilizing artificial intelligence is smart enough to know that there is less than a 1 in 10,000 chance that Rick Warren was preaching the truth. Siri, can you explain your analysis of Rick Warren's sermon to somebody who is a fan of Star Wars? You have a greater chance of successfully navigating an asteroid field than you do of hearing Rick Warren accurately teach the scriptures. Have you ever prayed a sun stand still prayer? Why would I do something as silly as that? The story of the sun standing still in Joshua chapter 10 is not about prayer. Looking in Joshua chapter 10 to learn how to pray is like asking your Macintosh to teach you how to use Windows 7. What do you think of Joel Osteen's sermons? Is this a joke? No, this is not a joke. I'd really like to know what you think of Joel Osteen's sermons. Words like junk food, cotton candy, and cancer-causing artificial sweeteners come to mind. Don't pay more for travel than you need to. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to tell you about Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Cheapo Air is a leading provider of airline tickets, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Cheapo Air has extensive partnerships with the top travel brands in the world. Now, whether you need to travel for business or for pleasure, Cheapo Air can help you save money. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already 
low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the banner and book your low-cost travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air goes to support Pirate Christian Radio. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become, well, really good at identifying exegetical squirrels, which, again, is a good thing. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you are signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. That is a great way to support us. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to post office box 13344 Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support because we cannot do what we are doing here without it. Moving along. Time for a Joyce Meyer update. You got to accentuate the positive, eliminate the negative, and latch on to the affirmative. Don't mess with Mr. In Between. You got to spread joy up to the maximum, bring gloom down to the minimum, have faith or pandemonium, liable to walk upon the scene. To illustrate my last remark, Jonah in the whale, Noah in the ark, what did they do just when everything looked so dark? Accentuate the positive, eliminate the negative, and latch on to the affirmative. Don't mess with Mr. In-Between. There you go. Don't mess with Mr. In-Between. you got to accentuate the positive, eliminate the negative. <laughs> yeah, that's... I, I forget who uh, recommended that for our Joyce Meyer updates, but it was a brilliant pick. I mean, it, I, you, you could not have come up with a... Better, uh, more appropriate uh, uh, transition music when we do our updates regarding Joyce Meyer. Now, what we're going to be listening to is a message about learning how to, well, um, think like God. Uh, Yeah, that's uh, what we're going to be listening to Joyce Meyer talking about. And the problem is, is that, uh, number one, the first passage that she gets to is... uh, um, well, the best way to put it, it is a subtle, subtle Bible twist, and uh, uh, the name of the by the the name of the series in on her television program is "Think Like God Thinks." Um, the second, uh, the second Bible twist in this is uh, is really uh, an example of the exegetical squirrel. So I think you, you kind of get what's going on there. So the the first one is super subtle. And very difficult to spot if you uh, if you're not paying close attention to the context of a text, uh, and also you, this the first uh, passage she twists 
requires a little bit of that other uh, exegetical technique known as Scripture interprets Scripture. So without any further ado, here is Joyce Meyer talking about learning to think like God thinks. Here we go. About how Satan starts so early in our life trying to build strongholds in our mind, which means that he lies to us in areas and entrenches himself in our thinking or entrenches his lies and ideas into our thinking. So we live our lives believing lies, which then cause us to behave in wrong ways. Now I'm going to pause right there. That is a huge error on her part. So here's the question that I have for you. Does scripture teach that we are basically good people that um, that Satan has lied to us and distorted our thinking, and that thinking causes us to sin. Um, and if we just correct our thinking, then and you know, and then we'll straighten out and fly right. Is that what Scripture teaches? No, it doesn't. Let me read again Ephesians chapter two. Uh, let me start at verse one. Passage we read here a lot because if you misdiagnose the problem with humanity, you're going to miss. You're, you're not going to understand what the gospel is. And he says this, and you, you, uh, you Christians in uh, Ephesus, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind." So the idea is is that Scripture teaches not that we're we're all basically good people who are uh, currently being deceived by the devil and believing lies, and that causes us to misbehave. No, it teaches that we're born dead in trespasses and sins, and by nature children of wrath. Sinners sin because they are sinners. Yeah, that's right. So already we're off on the wrong foot with Joyce Meyer here. She's describing some kind of a... Uh, theology where you know there's a whole bunch of people out there if if they would just have the right information they could live their lives in victory so to speak because they're all basically good they're just believing the devil's lies that's not what scripture says so he does it to everybody and then we all get out there and try to get along together and it just becomes a real huge mess the only hope for us is to have our minds renewed by the word of god learn how to think the way that god wants us to think learn how to say what god wants us to say so we can be what God wants us to be. Learn how to say what God wants us to say so we can be what God wants us to be. Notice, word of faith heresy. Your words create reality. Your thoughts and your words create your reality. Do what God wants us to do and have what God wants us to have. Everybody would say, yes, I want to have what God wants me to have. Well, you got to backtrack about several steps and start back over here with learning to think the way that God thinks. Now, the text that she's going to go to to try to demonstrate that this is what God's Word says, she's going to take out of context. Again, Book of Ephesians, too, which is fascinating. I guess a lot of people, like me, for a lot of years, I thought my thoughts didn't really matter. Didn't know I could do anything about them. Just whatever fell in my head was what I thought about. If I woke up in the morning, the thought came to me, I'm depressed, and I would just go around and be depressed all day. Didn't even try to overcome it. Didn't think I could cast it down. And what a glorious day it was for me when I learned the truths that I'm trying to share with you that I actually did not have to meditate and think on everything that fell in my head, that I could cast that out and choose something else that would help me actually enjoy my day and live a good life. Now, 
in the beginning, it's a little bit difficult because we haven't practiced doing it. We've been rather passive and empty-headed and just kind of wait around and see what's going to fall in our head. But we're learning that now we can be aggressive and take the leadership role in doing our own thinking. Ephesians 4.22. Okay, there's where she's going. Ephesians 4.22. So we're going to have to apply our three rules for sound biblical exegesis right off the bat here so that we understand what's going on in this passage so that we are not deceived by Joyce Meyer. So notice that all of what she said so far is laying the groundwork so that you're approaching this text with her ideas in your mind and and lo and behold now she's taking this passage out of context when you get to this text you are going to think that it has to do with what she said this is not exegesis that she's engaging in this is a form of eisegesis and she's ripped this passage out of context so let's take a look at ephesians chapter 4 we're going to read a little bit more of the passage than she has put before us. And we're going to do this by starting at verse 1 again. Yeah, let's let's get that full immediate context. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Now remember, in Ephesians 1, you've got the great Christological statements that we read uh, just a few minutes ago. Uh, Ephesians 2, really coming home and driving home that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ's work alone, that our salvation, even our faith, is not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. And uh, and it's not from works, and that we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. So Paul really hammers home the the, the gospel in in very clear, very comforting, proclamational statements that are for us and for our salvation and for our comfort. And so by the time we get to Ephesians four, Paul is starting to make the transition. Then, as the for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. We are saved now, and we're set free from slavery to sin. What then does our life look like in light of that reality that we're now free in Christ? Not free to sin, but free from slavery to sin. So Paul says, that I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, there is one body, one Spirit, just as you were all called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Notice here, Scripture teaches not that there's many different versions of Christianity. No, there's one faith. Uh huh. One faith, one Spirit, uh, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. By But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying that he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he, Jesus, gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the shepherds and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body, until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the statue and the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, but carried ab- uh, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Let me read that again. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning 
by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Yeah, that, this tells us something about deceivers. They're crafty. They're cunning. They're you know, they're they they blow strange winds of doctrine through the church. And if we're mature in Christ, we're not going to be blown hither and yon by false teaching. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding. They are alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Uh, This has to do with the fact they're born dead in trespasses and sins. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way that you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come from your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So the, Paul is pointing us to a reality, saying to put off the sinful flesh, put on the new man. And then there's this idea in this text of the renewing of our minds, right? Well, let's take a look at a cross-reference then in Colossians 3. You know, what does it mean to renew our minds? Paul explains it there, you know, therefore, put away all slander and malice and things like this. And talking about the true sins uh, that well up within our own sinful flesh, okay? Because we're currently, all, every one of us who's a Christian, we are both sinner and saint. We're simul justus et peccator, simultaneously justified before God. This is all by God's grace. And we still have our sinful flesh. So we're saved. And at the same time, we still have a sinful flesh. So this is kind of the now, not yet aspect of uh, the Christian life here under the curse. Colossians 3 is a good cross-reference to what we just read. Paul says, If then you have been raised with Christ, verse 1, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So put to death, mortify, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Put away anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. 
Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Yeah, so you kind of get the idea of what's going on here and this idea of renewing of your mind, putting off of the old self, putting on the new. This is what's going on in this text. But what Joyce Meyer does next, and you're going to hear this, is very subtle. It's a very subtle twist. And the reason why it's a subtle twist is because she's already falsely handled this text without reading it because she's created the lens that we're going to approach this text. And the lens that she's created is this word of faith heresy lens that says you create reality with your words. You create reality with your thoughts. That's not what this text is saying. And she's going to key in on the words uh, transformed by the renewing of your mind as if somehow, oh, look at that. That means that, uh, you know, it means you've got you've to renew your mind and stop complaining and think positive thoughts because that will, that's not what the text says. The renewing of your minds is the putting off of the old self, sex, sexual immorality, lies, slander, and malice, things like that, and putting on the new self, meekness, humble, all that kind of stuff. So let's continue with her. Pay close attention. It's a very subtle twist. Through 24, we're going to take a look at this. Strip yourselves of your former nature. Put off and discard your old unrenewed self, which characterized your previous manner of life and became corrupt through lusts and desires that spring from delusion. So the first instruction from the Apostle Paul to the Ephesians was put off the old man. We know that the Bible says that if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. All things pass away and all things become brand new. However, there's a cooperation that we have to give working with the Holy Spirit that although I now am a new creature, I need to put off that old nature. The next verse says, and be constantly, everybody say constantly. And be constantly renewed in the spirit of your mind, having a fresh mental and spiritual attitude. And the next verse. Yeah, where are you getting this having a fresh mental and spiritual attitude from? That's not actually in the text. Let's go back to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. And you'll notice what she's doing. She's sticking words into the text. I think she's reading this from the Amplified. And the Amplified is not a, a, a Bible that you want to use for any kind of biblical study at all, okay? What it does is it pours every you know lexical definition into a word every time it appears. So let me read to what she, what she just said. And be constantly renewed in the spirit of your mind, having a fresh mental and spiritual attitude. Yeah, um, that's not in the text. So we are in the, uh, Ephesians 4... Let me read again. She started at verse, uh, let's see, where is she? 22. Uh, Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and, and, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's sticking stuff into the text here. 
stuff that is not in the original Greek manuscripts. She's sticking things in there. And put on the new nature, the regenerate self, created in God's image, God-like, in true righteousness and holiness. So we see that we need to put off the old man, put on the new man, stop living the way we used to live, start living the way God wants us to live, and the bridge to get from one to the other is be constantly renewed in the spirit of your mind. Yes, and Paul in Colossians 3 explains that that is to set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are below. Where the mind goes, the man follows. It's impossible to have a positive life and at the same time have a negative mind. That's not what this text is saying. You're not paying attention to it. And it's important to note that you totally ripped it out of context. Since you started in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22, you started in the middle of a sentence. That's always a bad sign. If someone's going to, you know, start, we're going to start where I want you to open up to, you know, this such and such a passage and you begin reading. And the first verse that you're starting in is part of a sentence. And you're only getting a sentence fragment to start with. That is a bad sign. Can anybody say amen? That's just not going to work, is it? Well, today what I want to teach you is when is your mind normal? Now, the exegetical squirrel is coming up. (laughs) What is really normal for a believer? You see, what's normal for the world is almost always not normal for us as far as looking at it in God's, God's economy. You know, there's a world economy, but there's God's economy. There's a way the world lives, but then there's a way that we are supposed to live. You know, the world worries, but we get to pray. So we don't want to pray and worry because then we're still back in both of those worlds. So we have to learn, when is it normal? It's not normal to worry for a Christian. When I say today it's not normal to worry, most of you would think, well, yeah, it's really normal to worry. Well, it shouldn't be for you. For you, that should just be like, well, that don't feel right. That don't feel good. What is she talking about? That doesn't fit at all. Have any of you ever put on something to wear and found that you had a few more pounds on you today than you had the last time you wore it. (laughs) And it was just really, really, really tight. And you tried to wear it anyway. And it just made you miserable all day. Anybody ever had that experience? Okay. Well, that's kind of the way it is when we try to wear things or let our mind be in conditions that don't fit us as Christians anymore. Notice all the emphasis on what you think, as if somehow it's just about straightening out your thinking. It's not exactly right. You see, there are things when you become a believer that just doesn't look right on you anymore. It just doesn't fit with you anymore. Maybe an unbeliever could have that attitude and wear that attitude and talk like that, but it's not for you anymore. It's not right for you. Well, I for, it's kind of interesting because as you grow spiritually, you begin to know that. So you put off those attitudes, you put off those thoughts. And as I have matured in years also, one of the things that I will not do anymore is wear something that's uncomfortable. I cannot stand it. Not in the physical or in the spirit. So when, when is your mind normal? How 
should you be thinking as a believer? Well, first of all, I think that believers are supposed to have a made-up mind. Okay, now this is where the exegetical squirrel comes in. And the technique that she uses is very similar to what you heard David Crank do, where he reads the text, ignores the pronouns, and then changes them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Put all things under his feet, under his feet. See, God put all things under your feet. No, I'm, no, no, I'm not the his there. The, watch p- really closely what she does here. This is exegetical squirrel going on. Here we go. So God wants us to have a made-up mind, okay? We need to know how to know what we want to do, make our minds up that we're going to do it, and not change it every few seconds. Uh-huh. Colossians 3, 2. Colossians 3, 2. Weird. We just read this. Watch what she does. Set your mind and keep it set. Okay, now watch what Set your mind and keep it set. Set your mind and keep it set. See, she's saying we got to have made-up minds. But what she's doing here, she's not really reading the text or paying attention to what it says. Things that are above. Not on things upon the earth, for you are dead and your real life is hidden with God in Christ. Set your minds and keep them set. Set your minds and keep them set. Set your minds and keep them set. Not set your mind and change it. Set your mind and change it. Set your mind and change it. Now, let's take, let's take a look at the passage again in Colossians 3. Okay. Keep your mind. Set your mind and keep it set. Set your mind and keep, she says, right? <clears throat> Colossians 3, one. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Okay, what are we to set our minds on? Things on earth or things above? Answer, things on in heaven. Things that are above, not things on earth. Next, verse 2. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. So where are we to set our minds on? Things on earth or things... Above. Answer, the text says, set your mind on things that are above. This is what the text says. But she thinks this text is saying, you got you to gotta have your mind made up. And, you know, and you, you as a Christian, that one of the things that you have is this attitude that, you know, you're going to set your mind on something and, and you're, it's just going to be a, a bear trap and you're not going to be moved. It's not what it's saying. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Now, listen to what she then describes what we should be setting our minds on. Are the things that she says next, are they the things that are above or things here on earth? Listen in. You can make your mind up that you're going to clean your house up today. Is my house in heaven or if I'm cleaning my house, is that a thing that's on the earth? And don't let anything change it. When somebody calls and says, let's go shopping, you can say, no, I've got my mind made up. I'm cleaning up my house today. That's not what... Colossians 3 2 is talking about. It says, Set your mind on things that are above, not on earthly things. Cleaning my house here on earth is an earthly thing. Somebody calls and says, Come on, I'll take you out for lunch. Nope, I've got my mind made up. I'm going to get my house cleaned up today. The only way that we can ever accomplish what we really want to accomplish in life, the only way that we can be true to our true selves and follow our true heart desires, is if we set our mind in the direction that we want to end up in. Where do you want to end up in life? Yeah, again, is that setting my mind on things that are above or things on the earth? Yeah, she just engaged in the exegetical squirrel. Set your mind on that and stop changing it every time you turn around. It's amazing the victory that you can have and the things that you can do if you set your mind. And you can learn to do it or God wouldn't tell you to do it. People ask me, Yeah, God didn't tell me to set my mind on cleaning my house. It says set your mind on things 
that are above. So there you go. I mean, that's those are examples of the exegetical squirrel where, you know, the person reads the text and pays no attention whatsoever to what the text is actually saying and just sticks into the text stuff that isn't even there. And uh, this is a formula for deception, self-deception as well as deception at the hands of a false teacher. And if your favorite Bible teacher or instructor is um, well known for the exegetical squirrel, you know, reading what it says and not actually paying attention to the details of what the text says and then takes you in a completely different direction than the text says, that person's a Bible twister. And you need to stop listening to them. They're not pointing you towards Christ. They're actually pointing you away from him. They're not sound at all. They are, these are wandering stars, and you can't navigate by somebody who isn't paying attention to what the text actually says. All right, we are up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, sermon review from uh, City of Life Church in Kissimmee, Florida. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Jesus did not die for your 401k. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. No, seriously. Starfleet wouldn't have lasted two minutes against the Death Star. Say what you want, dude. Why can't you admit that Star Trek created proton torpedoes first? So what are you saying? Without proton torpedoes, Luke Skywalker would never have been able to destroy the Death Star in the first place. Nuh-uh, bro. He had the Force. You mean midichlorians? That never happened. Those movies were just bad fanfics. Hey! Have you two seen any Daleks around here? Uh, no. That's funny. We just picked up a distress signal and decided to check it out. Well, we haven't seen any... Come on, you two! Get in! Run! Never fear, nerds of the world. It doesn't matter whether you're into Star Wars, Star Trek, or Doctor Who. Think Geek has something for almost every fandom around. Celebrate your love of all things nerdy by going to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. And by clicking on the ad banner, a portion of your purchase will go to supporting Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. to a Fighting for the Faith sermon review time. Now this is going to be kind of like the machine gun of exegetical squirrel. But we got to set this up and do it right. 
We have a tradition to uphold here at Fighting for the Faith. the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via City of Life Church, Kissimmee, Florida. Pastor Jeffrey Smith presiding. The text that he will be mangling, well, they're all over the place. Just about every text he handles, he will be mangling. The name of the sermon is, the sermon series is Imagine... The sermon itself is entitled, Your Future Undeniable. Oh, what a great gospel that sounds like. Your future, it's undeniable. Are we talking about eternal life? Are we talking about forever with Jesus in eternity, new heavens, new earth? No, 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 no. no. Your future undeniable, this is talking about, um, or at least Jeffrey's talking about, you know, dreams and, and, you know, success in life and things like that kind of missing the whole point of scripture so let's go ahead and back off on the music and without any further ado here's pastor jeffrey smith and uh, his sermon series imagine and the sermon your future undeniable here we go is our text scripture uh, for our imagine series so today uh really pumped up about it ephesians chapter 3 verse 20 it says this now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or what imagine yeah ephesians 3:20 um funny that uh, we spent so much time in the book of ephesians today i might as well have just read the whole letter <laughs> we yeah it's kind of bizarre anyway ephesians chapter 3 verse 20 uh, is the tail end of a of kind of a prayer that paul is praying and let's, we'll start at verse 7 can, so you can see the transition that Paul makes, and then you can see what function Ephesians 3.20 plays. And uh, it, isn't it weird that, I mean, all of these Bible twisters, they're not interested in what any text says in context. They just want to strip mine the Bible for words and phrases that fit their their own self-made theologies. So Ephesians chapter 3, verse 7, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone who who is what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, this was according to the eternal purpose that he was realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is for your glory. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he might grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Notice Paul here is praying for them, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, 
the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. You can think of this as kind of like doxology tacked onto the end of that little prayer. But what it's not saying is is that, listen, so here's how this works in your life. God's got this big plan for you, and it's way bigger than you could possibly imagine or think or whatever. And you just got to kind of get in the flow, and that can make it, and make it happen for you. Yeah, that's not what Paul's saying. And now that we've read it in context, you know that for a fact. So already, first verse out of the shoot, Ephesians 3.20, out of context uh, by uh, Jeffrey Smith here. And uh, he's mishandled it already. Not a good sign. According to his power that is at work in us. Another version, the New American Standard Version, which is our verse for the year at City of Life, says to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. So if you combine that to get the Jeffrey International Version, you get now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we can ask or imagine according to the power that is at work within us. Today, I'm going to talk to you part one called Imagine Your Future Undeniable. Father, We thank you so much for your presence today. Thank you for your goodness, your mercy, your grace. Thank you for that power that we sung about just a moment ago. I thank you, God, that as people earlier were praying out in their prayer language, Lord, that you would just give us just a peace and a context, Lord, that when we step out in... Praying in their prayer language? You mean you disobeyed 1 Corinthians 14 and had everybody speaking in tongues without an interpreter? God's word forbids that faith, our life becomes enriched. I thank you, God, that even that prayer language, Lord, is something that you've given us to encourage us when we don't know what to pray. We don't know how to pray. It's a way that we can worship and connect, God. We're praying for beyond in so many areas of our life. So stretch our thinking, stretch our beliefs uh, to believe and get ready and make space for something brand new in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Everyone said amen. Hey, let me have everyone stand up for just a second since we're in this brand new series called uh, Beyond. This is all next level stuff. I want to ask everyone in the room to turn in a complete circle. Turn in a complete circle. Turn and look at someone next to you. Say, don't judge me. You just did it too. Come on, look at them. Say, don't judge me. You just did it too. Okay, everyone can be seated now. All right, so the reason I had you turn in a circle is I just believe that you walked in here one way and God is about to do that with your heart. God is about to do that with your spirit. I believe the way that you saw things coming in is going to be different than the way you see things going out. I'm going to speak right now before what? Before I even start to people who have given up on hope, who, to people who have given up on your dreams. We serve the God who per- given up on hope and given up on your dreams. Uh-oh performs the impossible on a regular basis. So just get fired up, get excited, get ready, uh, get ready for just like you saw that, that father and that son that were out there and they had, he had the little toy dragon and all of a sudden it became bigger because he could see it. Just get ready to see your dreams enlarged in every area of your life. So I'm going to ask everyone here today to, uh, grab your phone or your calculator, 
uh, or if you're good with math uh, then, and, you, and you don't have a calculator, you don't have a calculator, grab a piece of paper, and we're going to do a couple, of, uh, a couple of math problems here real quick. Uh, it'll be a lot easier with a calculator. So here we go, okay? Anyone ready? Okay, so I'm going to ask you, first of all, to take your age and put your age down. Don't show anyone. And multiply your age times 365. Okay, multiply your age times 365 and then write down that number. Put, so take the answer to that. If you're on your phone and you've got a number, just write that number down in your notes app or something. Get it separate so you can remember that number or you can write that number down. Is everyone done with that right now? Okay, you've got that number. All right, so now what I want you to do is I want you to take the number 23,375 and I want you to subtract the number that you came up with. Subtract the number that you came up with from 23,375. So 23,375 minus the number that you came up with. So your age times 365 is a number. Then you take 23,375 and subtract that number. Has everyone got your answer? Everyone got your answer? Raise your hand if you, if you have your answer. Okay, so say I've got it. Okay, and if you don't have it, say I'm technologically weak. Okay, or I'm bad at math or something. Okay, so everyone's got your answer. So whatever answer you ended up with is the amount of days you have left to live according to the lifespan of the average American. So if you live to an average length of life, you take the number of years and you multiply it times 365, which is the number of days, and you subtract it from 23,375, which is the average amount of days that an American lives, and you have the average amount of days that you have to live if you live according to a normal life. Now, certainly everyone in this room is going to live to 120. Can I get an amen? Okay, so if that's, that's an interesting number for some people. That number is very, very small. For some people, there may be people here today who you've already gone beyond that number. Now, is the reason why you're having them do that math so that they understand that their life is fleeting and they need to repent and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and that eternity is a long time? Is that why you're having them do that math? And you can't subtract from that number because you're old. you've already lived more days than that number. That shows you you've lived more days. You say, Pastor Jeff, why start out with something that's morbid? No, it's not morbid. What it is is that's how many days you have left. I have roughly 12,000 days left. That's how many days that you have left to fulfill every purpose God has ever made for your life. That- really? Um Every purpose that God has made for my life, what do you think the purpose I'm going to experience is in eternity? Hmm? Boy, this is weird focus, don't you think? That's how many days that you have left to see God move in your family. That's how many days on average that you have left to see God do a miracle in your finances, in your career, in your job. To uh, See God do a miracle in your finances. How much you want to bet he mentions tithing? 
live up to the potential that God has placed in your heart. That's the average amount of days that you have if you live to that national average. So my question is, what are you going to do with the rest of your days? What are you going to do with the rest of your days? Are you going to be limited in your thinking? Now, remember, I told you I'm going to preach better if you say. Am I sinning if I'm limited in my thinking? Do people go to hell because they are limited in their thinking? Amen. Today. Okay, so I realize it's some heavy stuff here. And I realize that some of you guys like, no, this isn't heavy. This is total fluff. And it's not even right handling of God's word. It's false doctrine. I want to go park by the lake and look at the water and start thinking right now. Uh, th- that's not what this is all about. This, all, this, this is all about today lighting a fire in our heart to believe for more of what God could do in our life. Now, typically when I'm preaching, I will kind of talk about the topic. I, I, sometimes I might tell a personal story. I'm not going to do that today because I've got seven points that I think are all critical uh, to what we're trying to set up here. I believe the next couple of weeks is going to be totally transformational. I believe it's going to be literally like doing this. We looked at our life one way, and now we're going to view it a completely different way. Seven different points, and I'm going to start out with point number one. I'm going to ask every person to take notes here today. Open up your notes program and your phone. Grab a piece of paper, whatever you can. Write on your neighbor's hand. Whatever you have to do to get some notes down, you just make sure that you walk out of here with, with a page full of notes because you're going to want to read this again at a later time. So point number one is simply this. Imagine it. Imagine it. Uh, where does the Bible tell me to imagine anything? What are you talking about? So the context for this particular kind of imagination I'm talking about is imagine is... Stepping into the realm of the supernatural. Uh huh. And which biblical text says that? Getting out of what you can see and what you can know naturally, stepping into the realm of the invisible where all things are possible. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. All right. 1 Corinthians 2, 9 and 10. Hang on a second here. I want to get there. 1 Corinthians 2, uh, 9 and 10. Huh? All right. Let's take a look. In context, we'll start at verse 6. Yet among the mature, uh, let me me back it up. (laughs) Verse 1. And when I came to you, brothers, I I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Yeah. Am am I hearing about Jesus Christ and him crucified in this sermon from uh, uh, Jeff, Pastor Jeffrey? Yeah, no, not at all. For I decided nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And in my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and power, so that your faith may not rest in wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age. For the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory." None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen or ear heard, nor heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thought except the spirit of the person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. So uh, verse 9 Uh, No heart has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. This is talking about the fact that God 
you know, what it is that we're going to experience in eternity. We haven't even, we can't even begin to comprehend it. No one has even imagined what it is that God has in store for us, uh, for those who of us who are in Christ Jesus. So that's what this text is about. Let's see what uh, Jeffrey thinks it's about. Says what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. These are the things God has revealed to us by his Holy Spirit. What I'm trying to tell you today is it has to start with imagining a God-sized idea. A g- uh, wrong. Boy, talk about exegetical squirrel. Um, that's, again, this doesn't say, this text is not about, you know, some purpose in your life has to start with a God-sized imagination. You've twisted God's word because you ripped it out of context, and you're not paying attention to what the text actually says at all. You are basically doing the squirrel thing and taking us off in a different direction than what this text really says. We continue. God-sized vision that comes from him and from him alone. It can't be something that you see with your own eyes. It says, no eye is seen, no ear is heard. It has not entered into the hearts of man, the good things that God has in store for those that love him, but it's been revealed to us by the Holy Spirit. It's saying that you can't get a vision of it. No, it's not talking about any visions for our life here. That's talking about what's coming in eternity. Visually, you can't give a vision of it from auditory. You can't get a cognitive vision of it, something that you can think of or invent on your own. It can only be revealed to you by the power of the Holy Spirit. Imagine is a glimpse of a God thought. Imagine is a... Again, why are they saying amen to this if they were opening their Bibles and actually you know, following along and re- they'd realize he's not handling God's word correctly, they'd be doing this. Yeah, yeah, I know. I, I, I'm sorry for him. We continue. Glimpse of a God thought. I love Isaiah chapter 55, verse 8, where he says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. Yeah, and that has nothing to do with receiving a dream or vision for your life. You're not paying attention to what that text says in context. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Yeah, this is talking about how God thinks. This is dealing with the attributes of God and, you know, and what, you know, the deity is like. So what this is telling us today is this, your thinking is not big enough. Your, God's th- No, it's not saying your thinking is not big enough. No, it's saying that God is God. You're a creature. You can't possibly think the way he thinks. He's God. Thinking in every possible way, his ways are far superior to anything you can come up with. So if you're going to imagine the way we're talking about imagining, it has to be from the standpoint of believing the way God believes, of thinking the way God thinks. And it's unbelievable to think about God's thoughts toward you. He has thoughts that are toward you. His thoughts are toward you. He could be thinking about anything, but Jeremiah 29, 11, says for i know the yeah jeremiah 29 11 again look at the context it's been a while since we've actually taken a look at the context of jeremiah 29 11 a uh, a text that is constantly taken out of context 
Uh, we'll start at verse 1. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and the priests and the prophets and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile. Yeah, in other words, we're reading somebody else's mail here. Um, this was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother and the eunuchs and the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elisa, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, so this letter to the exile said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Yahweh, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Who's this letter written to? Yeah, not us. Uh huh. Build houses, live in them, plant gardens, eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Why were they sent into exile? Because of their idolatry. Uh huh. Pray to the Lord on its behalf for its welfare. You will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, because they're false prophets, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it's a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon... Yeah, you're going to be in exile for 70 years, folks. Buckle in. Uh, Many of you aren't coming back. That's what the Lord is saying. After 70 years, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for your welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I will restore your fortunes, gather you from all the nations and the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I'll bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Now you know what's going on. This is not some promise about God giving you a a dream or a vision. You just got to think big and think God-sized dreams for yourself. That's not what this text is saying at all. The thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. Now, when you come up with the word thoughts, uh, if you look in the Hebrew there, this word thoughts means I know my imagination toward you. Imagine that, that God is imagining a future for you. What are you talking about? The Hebrew word here in this uh, Jeremiah 29, 11, machashavah, uh, it has its thoughts, um, or plans, or devices, or purposes. Nothing in this uh, machashavah doesn't mean anything regarding uh, <laughs> imagination. Wow. It, where did you study Hebrew again uh, there, uh, Jeffrey? That God is, is, is purposing a future for you. Uh, imagination, purpose, invented means. He has an imagination towards you. It indicates motion, that it's coming from heaven, that from heavenward is coming ideas. Did you know that one idea can change your life? Ideas are coming from heaven. Who wants to reach out and grab them today? The ideas are coming from heaven. Yeah, right out of God's imagination. Who knew? Quick, just reach up and snatch one. 
purpose is coming toward you from heaven. Destiny is coming toward you from heaven today. Means and resources are coming toward you. How many people could use some resources today coming from heaven toward you for anyone that is willing to reach out and grab it today? When you limit yourself, you're actually limiting God. Yeah, how is that possible since God is is you know, is like, you know, omniscient, omnipresent, all-powerful? How is it possible to limit God? Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> what kind of God is that, by the way? Because his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. How dare we look at our life and say, oh, well, I could never do this. I could never accomplish that. My dad built this building, and one day a, a, a pastor from a different church walked in, and he looked around, and he said, my Lord, this building, I could never see myself pastoring a church with a building this big. And you know what? He didn't say it to him, but he told me afterwards, he says he'll never have to worry about it because if you can't see it, then it will never happen. When you limit yourself and your where are you getting this? The Bible doesn't teach any of this. Your life, you're not just limiting yourself. You're limiting the God that created you. Yeah, again, that's not possible. God is all-powerful. He can't be limited. He breathed his very breath into you. He created you in his image to think like him, to believe like him, to believe what he is capable of. Yeah, notice what we're not hearing. Um, we're not hearing law and gospel, sin, grace, repentance, and the forgiveness of sins. We're not hearing him proclaim the law to tell people of their sinful state and that Christ has bled and died for them. We're not hearing them being called to repent and trust Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. no. What we're hearing is complete abject nonsense. Using the technique of the exegetical squirrel, we continue. It has to be bigger than we can imagine. If you can do it by yourself, you're not believing big enough. Yeah, again, which text says this? This is just a myth. This isn't Christian doctrine. I'm going to say it again until someone says amen. If you can do it by yourself, you're not believing big enough. People say, oh, well, it's my dream someday to get my driver's license. That ain't no dream. A dry, to get your, you just go, anyone can get a driver's license. You go pass a test and you get it. You don't need God to get your driver's license. I'm talking about your dream has got to be so big, a God dream, that when someone hears it, they say they're crazy. Look at someone next to you and say, you're crazy. Look at him again saying, I love it. Don't wimp out on your dreams. What are you believing for today? Have you limited God in your life because the way things have turned out to this point? If so, you're not imagining it anymore. You're not reaching out there and you're, you're not believing. For, can you imagine God appeared to Solomon in a dream and he said, Solomon, what do you want me to do for you? What if God showed up at your door today and asked you that same question? Do you even know? Do you even have an idea? Uh, I'm on a bigger car. I mean, that's not a dream. Are you kidding me? That's, that's not a goal. He, he wouldn't have anything to bless. If you don't have something that you're believing God for, that's stretching you, that pushes it out there to the middle of the table, that stretches your belief system to the next level, we don't do it passively. We do it passionately. I mean, uh, there's a story in the Bible where Elisha is, is talking to the king and, and they're fighting the Syrians. And it's, it's 2 Kings chapter 13. And, and Elisha tells him, he says, take your bow and arrow 
arrow and shoot an arrow out there. And he says, okay. Uh, He says, I will. He said, that arrow represents your deliverance because you're going to strike against Syria. And this passive king who doesn't really have any goals or any plans is just sort of going through the motions like, okay, you said do that. He says, now take a couple of arrows uh, and strike them against the ground. And the guy takes the arrows and strikes them three times. And Elisha says, why did you just do that? He says he got angry at him. He says, why didn't you just continue striking? Because if you would have continued striking, you would have completely ab- abolished and annihilated them. But now you're only going to strike them three times because you only struck the arrows against the ground three times. How many people know that we've got to be so passionate that when it's, our, when it's our opportunity to put our faith out there for what we're believing for, that God is overwhelmed by our faith. Uh, again, that text that you quoted, uh, where and when should I believe God's going to bring me uh, you know, some arrows and tell me to strike him against the ground? What are you talking about? This text doesn't say that I'm going to do that or that, you know, that we've got to expect that God's going to do that in some kind of similar way in our lives. Again, exegetical squirrel. And he rises to respond to our faith. Alexander the Great had a philosopher that was working for him and under him who was a very talented man. Now, just so you know, Alexander the Great doesn't actually contribute to any of the text of Scripture. None of his stories are in there, although he is prophesied in the book of Daniel. Yeah, keep that in mind. And he wasn't a man of means, and he needed money. And he actually needed to borrow money from Alexander the Great, so he came to Alexander the Great and made a request for how much money he could borrow from Alexander the Great. And the, the sum was absolutely massive. And, and when, when he heard the number and everyone heard the number, it was over $50,000, which at that time was huge. And people thought that he was going to be killed for asking for this much money. And Alexander the Great told everyone, he said, pay the man immediately. Pay him because I am so, I'm so impressed with the fact that he not only understands my wealth, he also understands my generosity. See, that's like the God we serve. See, we serve a God who has limitless resources. He can do whatever he wants whenever, we, whenever he wants. But yeah, yeah he, he can do whatever he wants. But see, the thing is, is that what has God really promised to do for us? That's the question we need to look in Scripture for. Not this, oh, potential, God potentially could do all kinds of things. No, what has he promised to do for us? Answer, he's promised to forgive our sins. Why? Because Christ bled and died for them. He's promised to give us eternal life, and he calls us to repent and trust in him for the forgiveness of our sins. Um, God has not promised you some grand scheme of a purpose that you can accomplish uh, within the time that you have left, you know, within the average age of an American. You know what I mean? Yet we sit there and we think that the size of our dream means, oh, I got to I got to do a smaller dream because God's helping other people. Well, that's limiting God. God's power is completely unlimited and he can do whatever he wants. Whenever he wants, God is looking for people with big faith. Look at someone next to you say, I've got big faith. Big faith for what? For uh, having a big, audacious, hairy dream in your life? How about faith for the forgiveness of sins and a right standing before God? All accomplished for you by Jesus. I was at a, I was at a meeting this week where some, some guys showed up with their pastor. And in the meeting, he was preaching. And he had a couple of guys that were with him in this room full of business people stand up. And he said, hey, 
He said, Chuck, tell your, tell your story real quick. And the guy says, well, when I first came to, to church with my pastor here, uh, I had some dreams about my, my business, and I, I didn't really understand tithing that well, but I started tithing to my church and being faithful, and I didn't have very much money, but all of a sudden, I, as I was faithful and I continued serving in my church, the resources came in, and he said, he said, now tell them how much your company is worth now, today. Just six years later, he said, $400 million. He said, I just got to give a $1 million check in the offering last month. And then he went down the list of five Five different guys who have multiple tens of millions of dollars companies because they put the faith out there to believe that God could do something huge in their life. Look at someone next to you and say, I'm believing for big things. Yeah, actually believing for a $400 million company is believing for a small thing. That's paltry compared to eternal life because of what Christ has done for you on the cross. I mean, $400 million company, who cares? Eternal life, face-to-face relationship, right standing with Jesus, that's huge. Imagine it. Number one is imagine it. Say it with me. Imagine it. Number two is you have to want it. You have to want it. Yeah, you got to want it. So this is all law. Imagine it, and then you got to want it. Again, where are these steps laid out in Scripture, again, in order as a, as a coherent doctrine that actually hangs together in a passage that lays this out. Once you uh, imagine, once you stretch your imagination, once you stop thinking with your mind and, and your eyes and your ears and what you can see and feel and trying to just be creative in the natural when it comes to your dream, it's got to be a God-sized dream because his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways. Once you've imagined it, then, then you got to take a hold of it and you got to want it. God's going to bless people and he's going to give the miracle to the people that want it. And, and there's a great story of Mark. Again, which text says this? Mark chapter 10, it says, As they came to Jericho, as Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, that is the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging, sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, Call him. So they called to the blind man, cheer up on your feet. He's calling you, throwing his cloak aside. He jumped on his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. What if Jesus was in your face right now saying, what do you? Yeah, what if Jesus was, see, the thing is, I'm not in the story of blind Bartimaeus and neither are you. There's no promise that if we get in, or if Jesus gets in our face or whatever, we should expect that Jesus is going to get in our face. This is, again, Totally missing the point of all of these texts. Want me to do for you? What would be your answer today? This man knew his answer. Not only did he know his answer, he wanted it because he said, I want to see. I want to see. Go, Jesus said. Your faith has healed you. And immediately he received his sight, which is what he wanted. He received vision and followed Jesus along the road. And you know what's interesting is in our life, there are so many people that are here today and and your dream is is done. You've given up on it. You're not even on the road. You're like blind Bartimaeus. You've lost your vision. (laughs) Yeah, except for blind Bartimaeus wasn't allegorically blind. He didn't allegorically lose his vision. He for really, for real was blind. Man, this is 
just ridiculous. How is it the people who call themselves Christians are tolerating this as their teaching and their preaching? You know, and this and putting up with this nonsense from people who call themselves pastors. This is not what God's word says at all. You're sitting by the road. You hear people go by you. You can feel the wind pass as they drive on the way to their destination with their vision intact, but yours is gone completely. But what's interesting, God doesn't want you by the road. He wants you sitting there, and when Jesus comes by, you call out and say, that's the one that can save me. I. Yeah, when does Jesus come by again? I'm a little confused. Uh, Is this allegorically coming by or for real coming by? I'm a little you know, sketchy on the details here. Want to have vision in my life. Somebody give God a praise today. I'm going to start jumping on pews in a minute. Look at somebody next to you and say, I want it. Do you want it? My Lord, if God is blessing people and pouring out miracles based on it. Don't, don't have the attitude with, he's already been so good to me. If he never does anything else for my whole life, I'll be perfectly. Do you think that you get extra credit with God for that? No, you don't. His grace is sufficient. He wants to do exceedingly abundantly far beyond all that you can ask or think. It means whatever you can come up with is not enough. You no, know, that's not what that text is saying at all. We already proved that. It's not enough. He wants to do even more than that for you. He's greater than you think he is. He is ready for people that are full of faith. So number one, say it with me. We have to imagine it. Number two, we have to want it. Let's say those again. Number one, we have to. Number two, we have to. How many people want to imagine it? Raise your hand. Okay, how many people here, you want it? Wave your hand now. You got to get a little more aggressive there if you want it. Number three, we have to see it. You have to imagine it. You have to want it. And number three, you You have to imagine. You have to want it. You have to see it. This is all man-made law. This isn't even good law. This is like invent your own law regarding God and then just really bind everybody to this. This is mythological law. You have to see it. As a matter of fact, the definition of the word imagine is to form a vivid, powerful image of something not present to the senses. To form a vivid, powerful image of something not present to the senses. That should preach to you right now about what imagine is all about. Is you look around and you see nothing that looks like what this image that is in your heart. You look at your circumstances, you look at your bank account, you look at your family, you look at your marriage, you look at your job, you look at your relationships, you look at your credentials, you look at your intellect, you look at your talent level, and it's not matching up with the dream. But you know what? That is completely fine because that's what seeing it is all about. Did you know that African impalas, those beautiful little gazelle-like creatures that hop all over the place, have the ability to not only jump 13 feet in the air, but also a distance of 33 feet. So they can jump above a basketball rim and up to 33 feet. Isn't that amazing, the potential that is in that, that beautiful animal? The African impala. But what's, what's really incredible about that is that regularly you can see African impalas in zoos contained only by a three-foot wall. 
with nothing else but a tiny three to four foot wall. What is so interesting about that is they never even try to leave. Why? Because an African impala will never jump beyond what it can see. Who cares? I mean, what, what, that's like saying, yeah, you know, spider monkeys will never jump, you know, uh, uh, at, unless they can see the tree that they're jumping to. Who cares? Impalas and spider monkeys have nothing to do with what God's word says. Somebody gets it over here. An African impala will never jump beyond. I'm going to come over here to where he is. He will never jump beyond what he can see. There are people in your life, and when you look at your life, you see a tiny wall, and that might be the size of your income. You see a tiny wall. It might be a mistake you've made in your past, but what you don't realize is launch yourself above your circumstances. I'm not an impala, and neither are you. Launch yourself in faith to a place you have never been before. And God is going to set you free. Yeah, just because you screamed it and spit into your microphone and uh, have people applauding your zeal. um, This is zeal without knowledge because God's word doesn't actually say any of this. Somebody shout for Jesus today. Come on. Launch. Why do you think he gave you the muscles that you have in your legs? Why do you think that you cry every time you see something about children? He's put something in your heart. It's there for a reason. You launch out beyond what you can see. Don't you be limited by the color of your skin. Don't you be limited by your history or where you come from or what your family looks like. Don't you be limited by the language you speak. Don't you be limited by the lies somebody told you about what you will not do in your life. You launch out. You say he's gone crazy. You're dang right I've gone crazy for Jesus today because I believe. Yeah, actually, you haven't gone crazy for Jesus because if you had gone crazy for Jesus, you'd be preaching Jesus. But you're not. And you're not even teaching anything that Jesus taught. You're not even teaching anything that God's word says anywhere. This is all nonsense and gibberish. There is something on the next level for anyone that is willing to launch out today. There's a man named Art Linkletter. And Art Linkletter went on a little ride with a friend of his out into the just the middle of nothing, in the middle of nowhere. Just nothing but cow pastures, horses, cows, just, just the middle of nothing. And his friend said to him, I want you to look around at all this stuff. Because I have a dream of something I want to do here. And I believe that the property that you're seeing here is all going to be worth tens of millions of dollars someday. Everything you see, there's going to be hotels, there's going to be restaurants, there's going to be shopping, prime property. And Art looked at his friend and he said, I'm sorry, I just don't see it. 
I just don't see how that's possible. And he was standing about a hundred steps away from his car. And he went on to say later in his life, he assumes that each step that he took on the way back to his car, because he chose not to buy any of that property, that each of those hundred steps cost him at least a million dollars per step someday. Because the man that was standing out there with him, his name happened to be Walt Disney. And see, you have to be able in your life when the circumstances don't match. And when you look out in that old empty field and you see nothing all around you, you have to be able in your heart to imagine and see what God has for your future. And Yeah, um, why are we focusing on the here and now as if God's promising me hundreds of millions of dollars? Because he's not. And I mean, what a paltry thing that is. I mean, you do understand that the streets of the New Jerusalem are paved with gold. Yeah. Um, So, I mean, what you're talking about is like nothing. And this world is passing away. Who cares if I live some grand vision here and now or have a Fortune 500 company or get a big bank account? Jesus says, if you, you know, what, what will it benefit a man if he gains the whole world, and forfeits his soul. You're not preaching Christ and him crucified for our sins. You're filling these these people's heads with nonsense and whipping them up into a frenzy, thinking that God is promising them to win the lottery or something here. God has not promised for anyone of us to win the lottery or to have a gazillion dollars. This is absurd. And for your family, when it hurts, when the pain is there, when you don't see any evidence at all, when you see empty seats, when you see empty seats in your business, when no one's showing up and you've done your best to put everything together and make everything as nice as it could be and nobody gets behind your vision, you have to be able to see what it looks like in the future. You have to see it. You have to imagine it. You have to believe it. And you got to what? You got to see it. Oh, that's right. You got to want it. She knew it over there. She knew it. The preacher didn't know it. You got to imagine it. You got to want it. And you got to see it. We're moving on to point number four, which I was getting ahead of myself, which is believe it. You got to imagine it. You got to want it. You got to see it. You got to believe it. And no biblical text lays this theology out anywhere. This is just basically being put on these people as if it's the will of God. If this was the will of God for you to believe this, don't you think a biblical text would clearly say it? Mark 29, 23, Jesus said, if you can believe, look at someone next to you, point your finger and say, if you can believe, come on, do it again. Say, if you can just believe all things are possible to those that believe, that's all you got to do. You got to believe today. If I'm doing, yeah, you're waxing word of faith here, ripping all of your texts out of context. Doing anything today. Hopefully, I'm stirring up your belief and your faith that Jesus is big enough. He's strong enough. He's good enough. God loves you enough. His plans are bigger than your plans. You think you've got plans that are big. You need to expand them because if they make sense to you and they make sense to everyone that hears them, they're not big enough. Your plans have to be bigger today. Did you know that Albert Einstein said your imagination is a preview of life's coming attractions? Albert Einstein said that. Your imagination is a preview of life's coming attractions. 
How many people here love going to the movies? Raise your hand if you love going. Oh, I love going to the movies. I remember one of the best previews I've seen, and I, I ended up loving this movie, but one of the best previews I've seen in a long time was X-Men Days of Future Past. When that preview came out, it was the dopest preview. I was going crazy. I wanted to see that movie immediately. I, I love movies so much that when I go to the movies, I want to get there for the previews. Why? Because when you see a preview, you start to think about the way the movie is going to possibly end. It gives you a picture of something that you don't have yet, but you've got enough to go by. You've got enough that your heart starts aching for it and longing for it. And that's what happens in your life. When you begin to believe it, you have a preview. Your imagination gives you a preview of your future. Your imagination or picturing what you want is like a GPS system. Once you begin to see yourself doing what you want to do, and you set the bar in your life, it's like typing in a GPS location. What you don't realize is that our heart and our soul and our spirit are programmed by God that when we have a destination, we automatically gravitate there. No matter what we're doing, we've got that in our GPS and we're moving toward that destination. And we know when we take a wrong turn, we understand why, because they got that destination in mind. Rather than just sit there in neutral for another year, how about start driving toward your dream today? Turn in a circle. You came in one way, turn in a circle, and walk out another way. Again, which biblical texts teach this nonsense? You got to imagine it. You got to want it. You got to see it. You got to believe it. Number five, you got to write it. You have to write it. Habakkuk 2 and 2 says, God answered, write this. Write what you see. Write it out in big block letters. So Yeah, Habakkuk 2.2 is out of context. God gave a specific vision, you know, prophetic vision to Habakkuk regarding Israel. And he said, write it, make it plain so that everyone who reads it will run for their lives. That's what he was saying. This is not some thing where, you know, there's, this is a, you know, a blanket thing that we're all supposed to be doing. You know, God's going to give us a vision. We got to write it and make it plain so that, you know, that it'll happen. You know, that's not what Habakkuk 2.2 is saying at all. So that it can be read on the run. The, the traditional translation says, write the vision plain upon the paper. Write out your vision. Whatever it is that yeah, Habakkuk 2.2 is not saying for you to write out your vision. Just look at it in context. That is in your heart that you're believing for, that you're imagining for, that you're seeing in your spirit. You have to write it down. I'm going to read you a statistic that it sounds almost cheesy when I'm going to read it. I don't even like these types of things like these success seminar type statistics that are out there. I'm just not into them. But I can't ignore the result of this because it's so profound to me. And it's so true. A professor at Virginia Tech went on to reveal when, when asked about his study where he was asking people's, what are your, people, what are your goals in life? He found through his massive research project that 80% of people that he talked to, 80% said that they have no goals in life, that they do, or, or they don't even know what their goals are. Maybe that's you. I mean, it's statistically, if 80% of the people in this room, you don't even... And, and you do know that 100% of everybody born as a direct descendant of Adam and Eve through the natural means is born dead in trespasses and sins and under the control of the devil and heading to hell. That's why we got to preach the gospel so that Christ will raise them from the grave and bring them to penitent faith in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You're not focusing on the main message of what God's word is about at all. To know what your goal is in life. 
Uh, Imagine how terrible that is. 16% said that they have goals, but they've never written them down before. They have goals, but they've never written them down before. The Bible tells us here to write them down. 4% said that they've written their goals, but they've never gone back to ever look at them. They've written them down, but they've never gone back to look at them. This is just a fact right here. It's just true. It's exactly what it said. You're not even going to believe this, but 1% of the people that he talked to said that they have written down their goals and they review them on a weekly basis. So what? Does that equal salvation? What about all the people who are going to hell? Who cares about how many people write down their goals or their dreams? The question is, as a pastor, are you preaching Christ so that people aren't going to hell? There's something worse than you know living a life without achieving a goal or a dream. And that's a living a life where at the end of it, Christ says to you, depart from me, I never knew you. And then you're cast into the lake of fire. And 100% of the 1% were all multimillionaires. 100% of the people who wrote down their goals and reviewed them on a weekly basis were all multimillionaires. Again, who cares if you gain the whole world and you lose your soul into the hells of fire? Are you saying, well, Pastor Jeff, are you trying to give me the key to success or being rich? I'm trying to give you a biblical model of what we have to do if we're going to have dreams that are ever accomplished in our life. The Bible tells us we're supposed to write down the vision. And when it says write it on a billboard, there's a version that says write it on a Yeah, Habakkuk 2.2 is not about writing down your vision. Habakkuk 2.2 is about Habakkuk writing down a prophecy he received from the Lord so the people would read it and run for their lives because God was about to judge Israel. On a billboard, it's saying put it out in front of your face. Put it on your mirror when you're getting ready. Put it in your car up on the front. Whatever that dream is, I'm going to make a movie. I mean, I remember when we were making Blink, I had this particular camera that I wanted so bad. And for years and years, I wanted this camera. It's the same camera that The Hobbit was filmed on, The Lord of the Rings. And I wanted it. And that's, that's what our creative team, give our creative team another huge hand. They did such an amazing job. They wrote produce everything that you saw is, is them. It's so fantastic. But I would talk about that camera. I would, I would tell people about that camera. I would say, dad, this is the camera that we've got. And sometimes I would even say the camera that we've got. And I didn't even have that camera. Didn't have the money to buy that camera, but just spoke it, just spoke it, just spoke it over my daughter, Mia, before she was born, God spoke to me and my wife and said that her name will be synonymous with peace. If you say Mia, you might as well be saying peace. Uh, Yeah. Why doesn't the Lord tell you to stop twisting his word? I mean, if you're really hearing from God, don't you think the Holy Spirit was saying, knock it off? That she's going to be a bomb or a healing ointment to the nations. Uh, she told us about our son, Jew, that he would be a man of compassion with healing in his eyes. Told us about our daughter, Zoe, before she was ever born, that she would kick down walls and bring overwhelming joy to people when she's around them. What do I do? I believe that with all my heart. It's, it's in my heart. I know it for a fact. I'd, I've written it down on paper, everything that God spoke about them. And we're starting to see those things come to life at leads us to point number six after write it. Number six is say it. You've got to say it. The Bible says from the abundance of the heart, whatever is in the overflow of your heart is what comes out of your mouth. Think about that. If, if, If whatever is in the, in the overflow of your heart, Whatever you're saying, what's ever bubbling over when you're around people that are constantly negative and constantly tearing everything down and constantly pointing out what's wrong. Yeah, every single passage of Scripture you've ripped out of context. 
You're not an exegete. You are a Bible twister and a wolf. Wrong with everything. We're constantly pointing what's wrong with everyone. You can't even watch a TV show or, or an award show with someone. Oh, look at what they're wearing. Look at what he's wearing. Why did they get this person to host? Huh? Can you believe how bad they sound? Man, they need some auto-tune. Can you believe they sang with auto-tune? That's so uh, 1999. I mean, and share. You know, I mean, you, you, people just so negative. They find something negative to be about with anything they're talking about. From the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. I'm telling you, church, you've got to imagine it. You've got to, you've got to want it. You've got to believe it. You've got to see it. You've got to write it and you've got to say it. You got to speak it out, speak it out over your life. If you've got a dream and and you see yourself as being a kingdom millionaire, someone who's going to give a million dollars to the kingdom of God, say it every day. Say, I'm a kingdom millionaire in Jesus name. I will give a million dollars. I had someone came up to me the other day from our church said, pastor, they were shaking when they said it. Said, pastor Jeff, I'm going to give a million dollars to this church someday. You got to pray for me on how God's going to open up that door. Amy was standing right next to me. Say, pray for me. Cause I don't know how I'm going to do it. But I'm going to give a million dollars because I want to see the kingdom finance in Osceola County. I want to see everything that we've ever dreamed about doing to help the poor, to start churches, to start campuses. I want to see it happen in my lifetime. What are they doing there so you're gonna create more campuses to spread this false doctrine yeah that ensures that more and more people will just be going to hell they're saying come on give god a praise give god a praise they're saying it out loud with their mouth they're dialing in the gps the direction for their life i believe there's dozens of kingdom millionaires in this room right now i believe there are people in this room that are gonna yeah that is just absurd going to finance the kingdom that are going to preach for the kingdom they're going to do great things for god but you got to put that in your gps you got to start speaking it over your life stop ragging on your family stop talking down about your family all they ever do is start speaking what you want them to be start seeing something in your heart about what you can be forget about what you used to be start thinking about what you're going to be in your life and saying what you're going to be in your life write it say it and then finally i like this part the best have it just have it. Just simply have it. Habakkuk chapter, chapter 2 verse 3 says, This vision message is a witness pointing to what's coming. It aches for the coming. It can hardly wait and it doesn't lie. If it seems slow in coming, wait. It's on its way and it will come right on time. Yeah, that uh, thing that was supposed to come right on time. Read Habakkuk in context. It's God's judgment of Israel for their idolatry and their wickedness. Yeah, it's coming. It it's not going to be slow. It's, it'll be right on time. God's judgment. That's what Habakkuk two is talking about. Come on, somebody, give God a praise today. Every person, clap your hands for Jesus today. Cue sappy music. By the way, the sappy music is a, an emotional manipulation technique designed to create the false impression that God, the Holy Spirit, is now descending on the auditorium, getting ready to, you know, do business, uh, kingdom business with people there, you know. It will come on time. Yeah, maybe the Holy Spirit will reveal to people that they are going to someday be a kingdom millionaire. Oh, wow, isn't that great? Isn't that great? I mean, oh, this is just so deceptive, isn't it? It will come on time. It will come on time. Come on, look at someone next to you. Say, imagine it. Look them right in the eye. Say, want it. Come on, say, imagine it. Want it, see it, believe it, write it, say it, have it, baby. Come on, give God a praise today. Yeah, and that's the end of that thing. Wow, what a mess.
Did we learn anything about what God's Word really says in context? Did we learn the historic, biblical, Christian faith? Nope, not at all. All of that was narcissistic, Bible-twisting, false doctrine, and nothing about what God's Word really says. A false gospel at that, too. Wow. What did you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, so by carry his death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>